Welcome to the Bow Hunter Podcast, your home for all things bow hunting related. Now, here's your host, Jan Segato. What's going on, Bow Hunter Nation? Welcome to episode 11 of the Bow Hunter Podcast. In this episode, we sit down with Nico Robison from right here in Southern Illinois. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to talk to you about bowhunter.com. That's B-W-H-N-T-R.com. On bowhunter.com, you'll find show notes for the podcast along with a variety of merch and gear. I appreciate each and every listener and customer who purchases from the Bowhunter online store. And because of that, I want to offer an exclusive deal to you for listening to and supporting this podcast. All you have to do is use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at checkout, to get free shipping on anything you purchase through the Bowhunter store at bwhntr.com. I also want to take a moment to thank HuntReminder.com for sponsoring this episode. Never miss an application deadline again by using HuntReminder.com. To get your first reminder free, simply use BWHNTR at checkout. Afterwards, each reminder is just a one-time fee of 99 cents. In this episode, we dive headfirst into patterning public land bucks. As most hunters know, when it comes to hunting public land, you get what you get and make the best of it. Join Nico and I as he breaks down different buck patterns and habits so that you can get the most out of your scouting and hunting in the public deer woods. During the episode, you'll notice that I ask some pretty basic questions that many hunters may already know the answers to. I do this for a couple of reasons. One, I want Nico to get deeper into the subject. And two, I want the content explained for listeners at every experience level. That being said, let's jump right into the conversation. Sitting down here with Nico Robison from Southern Illinois. How you doing, man? Uh, better than I deserve. How about yourself? Not too bad. Uh, the weather's starting to change. I feel a little breeze coming from the north, and it gets me excited, you know, for uh, whitetail season. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's finally starting to get some cam footage coming in, and it's getting that time. I'm starting to get antsy. Heck, yeah, dude. So uh, tell me a little bit about your history with bow hunting, you know, your tradition, and how you got started. So I've been real hard into bow hunting for the past probably five or six years. Uh, first time I ever actually got in a stand was with an older cousin, uh, sh- uh, shotgun season. And um, i say I was probably eight or nine years old. And I begged him and begged him and begged him, I want to go because I watched them uh, Primo's TV shows. And, man, I was all about it. Yep. So he takes, he takes me out, puts me in a stand, and I'm just excited to see deer in the morning, right? This doe comes walking out probably 35, 40 yards, and he hands me the gun. Okay? And I look up at him, and he just kind of gives me the nod. I put that, put that scope on her, pull the trigger. She drops, man, and it was just like that. I was hooked. That really kind of set my fire for the whole thing that's awesome man it's that uh that first harvest that first successful harvest there's nothing like it and then you know throughout the years you keep going and you keep you keep doing that and it seems like that that thrill never dies and that's one thing that keeps me going back definitely if anything it just evolves and becomes you know something more than it was whenever you you know you get a little bit more out of it each time absolutely so uh one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was um I started following you on Instagram a while back and you really do some heavy scouting and hunting on public land. 
let's kind of zoom in on that and talk to me about um, your history of public land hunting and kind of what got you started on that and then why you continued to pursue the public land. Yeah. um, So I actually right out of high school left for the military. And when I came home, I don't have any friends or anybody that owns any private land. And a lot of people around here, there are so many people that are into hunting. They either have somebody on their land or they just tired of people coming and asking. So the only real option is public land. And um, I love being outside. I love being in the woods. So being out scouting and all that just gives me another excuse to, you know, work on my my uh, hunting game and fine hone all that. Yeah. One thing I've noticed since I started hunting was hunting leases have kind of really came up in the last five to 10 years. And it's really hard to find a piece of property, you know, where you can just go knock on the door and ask to hunt and them say yes. Cause typically in most cases for me anyway, these guys are already leasing some of that land out and making more money off of their farmland for people out of state to come hunt. Also, you mentioned you went off to the service, and uh, from one veteran to another, I want to say thank you for your service. You too, brother. So, public land. It's not everybody's cup of tea, and it sure is its own beast. What do you look for in public land, outside of just the fact that what's geographically available? But, you know, we're from the same area, and I know that each yeah. public land presents its own environment. So, what are you looking for when you're picking out which set of public land you want to hunt? So my main thing is going to be accessibility. Um, I don't want an area necessarily that everybody and their brother can just walk into. Um, Anything that's going to be a little bit harder to get to, or if it has one main entrance point that everybody's going to park at, is there a way to maybe get access through um, like a private land? Maybe somebody owns a trailer on the other side of this that I can park in their driveway and they don't care if I just walk into the woods from their point. Right. Um, and then the larger the piece, the better for me, because that's going to put more space between me and the other hunters. And I actually try to avoid large plots of, you know, how the DNR plants corn or they plant soybeans or sorghum or whatever. Yep. I actually tried, I try to avoid those um, until later in the season, because that's going to be the spot that everybody is going to want to hit because you will you first thing you turn on, you know, the TV or the YouTube and you see that's where they're hunting over a big food plot. So that's everybody's first idea is, Oh, there's beans. I'm going to go set over those. Exactly. So I tried and I try to avoid those at least early season because by the time that those are really primed to hunt anyway, it's too cold and everybody wants to go home. Yeah. Um, I think media definitely has an influence on, new hunters or people that you know are kind of i don't know if this is the proper term but hobby hunters yeah you know people that don't really want to go put the work in um and to each his own you know i enjoy putting the work and i enjoy the reward that i get from uh you know from about beginning of july on you know just getting out in the woods getting out in the heat kind of slaving away getting everything set up and primed that way once opening day rolls around I've kind of got all my ducks in a row and I, uh, I know that I put that work in, or at least if I'm doing something with a buddy, we, we put that work in and it's a lot more rewarding for me. Um, speaking of the work, one thing I noticed that you've been doing, especially this last month, and I'm sure you're going to do a lot more of it going forward is your scouting of the public land. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of, uh, limitations as far as what you can and can't do on public land as opposed to private. 
So how do you take that obstacle and overcome that when you, with your scouting efforts? Well, uh, first off, when I like, I do love trail cam setups, and on public land, that can be a little bit of an issue. So I always take a, a climbing stick with me, and I'll set my cameras like six or seven foot up, tilt them down. Mm-hmm. So even if somebody does see them, it's really unlikely they're going to be able to get to them unless they themselves are also carrying a climbing stick around, which I haven't really noticed much of. Right. Um, other than that, I don't notice too much difference between scouting public and scouting private. Uh, you're going to have a lot more variance in deer traffic year to year on public land because what they plant in the fields are going to change. So that's going to change your deer's travel patterns. That's going to change uh, where and how, what time they're bedding. And um, depending on wind direction, it's going to actually change a lot of your um, geothermal corridors, which is like where it's cooler at during different parts of the day, depending on what crops are planted for wind breaks and stuff like that. And that's just a matter of getting your boots on the ground and going out and checking. Could you go a little bit more into geothermal corridors? Uh, I've heard a little bit about geothermals and uh, different thermals to do with scent especially, you know, as the season changes. So I kind of want you to elaborate a little bit on that, if you will. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, So when you're on public land more so than private, your your biggest worry is going to be wind direction and scent. You know, everybody's walking around out there. Everybody's putting scent. So that's all going to be a buffer to the deer. Um, A geothermal corridor is basically you're going to have a little area. It could be uh, a dip in the ground that maybe it's a foot or two lower over here, or you got where the water runs out of a field and carves like a little ditch, you know? Mm-hmm. If you step if you step in that ditch and kneel down in your knees, you'll feel that it's actually like five or six degrees cooler right there because cold air is heavy, so it sinks. So that cool air is going to sink down into that as it's trying to find its lowest spot. That's why a lot of times you'll see deer walking up those draws and stuff like that in the evening versus just out in the open field. It's cooler right there. Right. Also, that that's going to suck your scent down too. So if you're you got your stand over a spot that you know the air's heating up, the ground's cooler. Okay, your scent's going to kind of come up a little bit. So you want to be sitting in a place where your scent that's coming up can be pushed away from you. Whereas in the evening, when you're sitting out there, sun's going down, everything's cooling, your scent's going to drop faster. So you actually have more ground scent during the evening time. If you can locate those geothermal corridors during the warmer parts of the day, that area is still going to be cooler. So your scent's going to be pulled to that area and away. You know which direction that's going to be going. It's most useful during like a still wind. But th- though that's like a big thing if you can nail those down because they'll use those to their advantage. Right. So um, you mentioned that scouting itself isn't much different when it comes to the difference between private and public however um land management is and i think that's kind of hand in hand with your scouting because as you scout private land uh you can make changes to improve the habitat for your success and on public land you can't really do that you're not going to be able to go in there and hinge cut you're not going to be able to go in there and mow uh travel lanes down uh and things like that so that's kind of the the big point that i wanted to get brought up in this conversation is that the the three things i wanted to go over are food bedding and sign because i watched one video that you did and you're looking at beans and Mm -hmm. while you didn't see a lot of activity in the beans in one area you walked a little down the field and you started seeing where they were eating on the beans. 
I just thought it was interesting of the attention to detail that you had in that video. You know, yeah. you, you want to talk about how you approach that? Yeah. So going into that, that's an exact example of, a, of looking for those geothermal corridors. So I was at the end. We had two hills coming together and a, where water had washed out the center of it coming downhill and back into the woods behind that uh, bean field. It drops down lower. OK, so that was the cool spot of that field. So I, I was seeking out that geothermal corridor. I went over there. I saw I could see where deer were kind of coming in and out. And then to narrow that down, what I do is I look and see where we have the most browse on the vegetation and not just the beans. Whenever you've got a large field of beans planted like that, they're going to eat wherever they're walking. And deer sometimes just walk off to walk off. Right. Right. So you also want to look at your natural browse, too. Um, honeysuckle, new sprouts from that spring, um, you know, bushes grow new ends and deer will eat those down. Um, anything that has carbohydrates in it in the earlier deer are going to chew on it. They're, they like to browse. They don't like to eat just one thing. So if you see an area that maybe it's got some beans nipped off here, you know, they've ate the flowers off here and there, but then you go 20 yards down that, uh, corridor and you see the beans are eaten, but you also, you have, um, maybe some brassicas or grass growing along that uh, fence row where the beans and the woods meet. You see that's, you see that's browsed down. You see the tips of the, uh, they really like to eat the fresh starts of new maple trees. They love them. Yeah. They'll chew those down. They'll chew those down to the ground. You know, you look for that kind of stuff. And now, you know, predominantly the deer are traveling in this area. They might go over to that other side if the wind's kind of iffy or if maybe there's something over here they don't like, but predominantly this is the way they want to go. I think that's extremely important, especially, you know, in October here in, here in Illinois, um, when they're still on those heavy feeding patterns and you can kind of pinpoint the general area that they're going to be in. But that brings me to my next point and that's bedding. Because if you're, hunting those fields, it's going to be a lot easier to slip in there in the afternoon when they're still bedded down. You know, what do you look for on public land? And I guess this can go for public or private, but what are you looking for as far as bedding goes other than, you know, just in the stand, oh, the deer are coming from the east. So I think they're bedding over there. Okay. So the bedding, that's a little bit of a tricky one because whenever you're talking about public land, there's so many variations. You could have massive CRP fields where they just letting everything grow. You could have big places where the DNR is planted like uh, beans or corn, sorghum, what have you. Or you have places like the Shawnee where it's just straight wilderness. And all of that's going to completely dictate how and where the bucks are going to be bedding. Does will bed anywhere they're comfortable. They travel a lot. They're going to have a lot of beds that they're just going to walk around and eat. Bucks, on the other hand, you know, they like to be, this is my home area. They're going to bed down in that area. And from those beds, they're going to be able to see you know, they're going to be able to survey what they consider theirs. Right. Um, and, I think, and so by surveying, they're going to survey with their eyes, their ears, and their nose. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, like, when you're talking about something like the wilderness, like the Shawnee, a lot of the times you're going to get those bucks uh, bedding on the north-facing slopes where you have the most continuous wind come up. Um, they're going to bed about three-quarters of the way up the, up the side of a hill where they can see down, but they're not skylined. Mm -hmm. um, and in the evening time, that wind's going to be coming the opposite way, and they're going to be able to smell everything behind them. They don't got to get up and move. They're covered at all times. 
that's going to be their comfortable place. That is the most uh, constant bedding I've seen in that type of scenario is usually north-facing slopes about three-quarters of the way up the hill. And you will find, and if you just walk that in a line, you will find bed after bed after bed, scrapes, rubs, all that. Yeah. Um, Isn't it amazing way- uh, when, you, when you finally find that pattern and you finally find that buck's territory, if you will, and uh, everything you just said, it's right there in plain sight. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like you can you get down in their bed and look and see what they see, and it's like somebody opened the door, and you're like, oh, I get it now. Yep. You know, like now it makes sense. You know. Yeah, you know, sitting here listening to you talk about these the bedding habits of bucks, and then earlier you were talking about the uh, geothermal corridors. It brought a picture into my mind just this last season. Um, some of the older bucks that I did happen to see while I was hunting in this particular spot, I was just up against a dried up Creek bed Mm -hmm. and almost every single time they would approach from the area, which I assume they were bedding, it was in the Creek bed, you know, they would get about where they needed to there. And then once they absolutely had to get out of it, they would. Yeah. So there, they got that coolest spot where there's probably food within, you know, a hundred yards. They got water. They ain't got to get up for nothing. All that scent's going to be pouring down to them, uh, you know, and so you can't sneak up on them and they can see you before you'd see them. That's where they feel safe. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, the smart ones typically live to be the oldest, and those guys are the ones that are, you know, proving what you're saying right right now. When you finally see them in those habits and in those patterns, they're, they're going to be doing exactly that. They're going to be taking the safest route because you know we're not the only predators that are out there definitely not and when it comes to them like that you know they won't even take that same like you'll see a deer trail coming to or from where you know that buck's bedded and if you ever get the chance to see him come out of the bed he he probably won't take that trail he's yeah. got his own he's got his own little trail 10 or 15 yards off of that main trail that the, you know the younger bucks and the does are running mm-hmm. so and he he won't most of the time they won't walk those same trails. They'll go do their own thing. I've literally seen three-year-old deer come up to the edge of a field and there'll be a five-foot hole where the does had just all poured through and he will walk through a six-foot blackberry bush, thorns and all. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, man, that does not make sense, but he's going to live another day because I can't reach him now. Exactly. Yep. You know, they don't get old by being stupid. That's That's for sure. That is correct, sir. So, um, you know, over the next couple of months, you're going to get out there. You're going to, if I remember right, they planted beans this year instead of corn. So a lot of things have changed for you where you oh, typically yeah. hunt at. Um, once you decide kind of those general stand placement areas, um, are you a hang on guy? Do you use a climber? Uh, I'm assuming public land. Uh, I'm not sure. Sh- I can't remember if it's, if every area in the state's the same. But I know the ones that I've hunted on, you can't leave your stands out overnight. You know, what's your what's your uh, plan going forward with that? Yeah, I wouldn't advise leaving anything out overnight just because people have sticky fingers. Yes. But um, I love my Summit Viper Climber. It is the most comfortable stand I have ever used. That being said, they are very limiting on what trees you can actually put them in. Yeah. Any amount of little squiggly branches, any amount of lean, and you know, you start getting kind of hinky on what you can put it in. So this year I'm actually, I'm keeping the Viper, but I'm upgrading with a lone wolf with Hawk helium sticks. 
Nice. And um, the climb, the um, climbing stick hang-on setup is so much more versatile, especially for run and gun situations. Um, I will probably use the Viper when it gets colder. Everything dies off. I'm gonna be doing longer all-day sets and that kind of stuff. And I've pretty much mapped out where I know I want to hunt because by the time late season comes, I've it, either I've shot my buck or it's probably just not gonna happen. Right. Um, and I'm meat hunting at that point. I try to put three to five deer in the freezer to get me through the year. And, um, if I, I've probably already nailed down the doe patterns at that point, I'm going to get that tree that I know is going to be within range, climb up and be comfortable and wait for him to come by. Yeah. I started off my first two years with only a climber. So I got very familiar with that very quick. And even today when I'm in the woods, I'm, I'm looking up, oh, that's a good climber tree. That's a good yeah. climber tree because you know, it's, it's good to know. And this year I have some plans with some, some new hunting buddies that I've made. And, uh, I don't want to, you know, I only have so many stands. I don't want to put them all in the same spot. So what I'm trying to do is put a fixed stand, whether it be a ladder or a, uh, hang on. And then I'm making sure, you know, within a reasonable amount of distance, that way we can hunt together. There's a tree I can climb near it. That way I can use that kind of versatile over the entire property. Yeah, that's a pretty good plan. That'll, I think that'll be real advantageous for you in the long run. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be pretty cool to be able to slip in there either by myself and I only have the one stand that's already there, or I can go with a friend and kind of take my climber out there and we can hunt together. Um, so you said you were running cameras and you kind of talked about your attack plan on that as far as a little bit of theft prevention. Um, what areas are you putting them in as far as, you know, travel corridors, food, I want to say food plots, but I guess ag fields, or I'm sure you're probably trying to stay out of the bedding areas. You know, what are you doing there? Uh, actually this time of the year, um, if I know where the bucks are bedding and when they're bedding, I'll get in there and put a cam up. Uh, I haven't noticed that being a problem at all. Um, they're used to everything else, you know, running around through the, through their area at this time of year. Now, once the testosterone starts pumping, they start in a breeding mode. They get real antsy about everything. They're kind of laid back right now. But as soon as they get hard horn, then they get real sketchy about stuff. Um, then I, you know, I won't go plowing, walking through a bedding area or anything like that. But this time of year, there's, you know, they're still pretty chill. They're pretty relaxed. Their hormones aren't pumping real hard. They, uh, they'll, they'll let a lot slide. Right. So uh, I will get in there and put up a trail cam if I, if it's a known bedding zone and I know they're not in there. Um, other than that, I look for any type of disruption. And what I, what I mean by disruption is where you have more than one or two types of field converging. So you could have beans, corn, and CRP all hitting each other. Well, that area where they all converge creates a, you know that little disruption where nothing's planted. You've got natural forbs and brassicas growing. Yep. Maybe there's some saplings. Everything's about you know knee to chest high. That's going to be a really high travel path for them just because that they thrive in that kind of environment. You know, if you go look at, an, at a massive pine stand that's 40 years old, you're not going to find a whole lot of deer other than just passing through. Right. If you go look at just an oak woods, there's going to be deer in there, but you're never going to pin, pin them down because there's oak trees everywhere. They're just going to walk around and eat. 
But when you get all that variance of food, because like I said earlier, deer love to browse. They like having a buffet. They don't just want to eat cheeseburgers. They don't want to eat chicken nuggets. They want to go to a buffet and have access to everything. Right. And, yeah, for sure. And that area is going to provide for them the biggest variance of minerals and food that they can have. And they'll travel that more than they'll walk through that fence row of woods to get to point A to point B just for the simple fact of they have that extra browse there. So I like to put a lot of my cams up on that if I can. Probably be my like number one area. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got a a very um, confident plan. And I mean that in the best way because a lot of people kind of just go out there, eh, this looks like a good spot, I'll throw a camera up. But you've really put a lot of thought in your process. And I, I think that's going to hopefully show success, at least in the uh, management of the herd that you're hunting. I know you said you really kind of charged into bow hunting in the last five or six years. What comes to mind whenever I ask about your most memorable hunting experience? All right. So I'm thinking about it right now because it's always on the top of my mind. It's giving me goosebumps. So I got a good friend of mine. His name's Kyle Isaac. Uh, he is a army engineer. He works on diesel trucks and stuff in the army and he's home right now. He's getting ready to redeploy here in another six months. Um, and He's been trying, he had tried three years straight to get a deer. No luck, no luck, no luck. I told him, I said, look, you're going to go into work. You're going to take a couple days off. Me and you are going to go out to the Shawnee. I got a spot. We're going to get you a deer. So he gets his time off work. We go in and it's about three miles, like not as the crow flies, but three miles of walking, side hilling, come across waterfall, just some of the most beautiful land in Illinois that you're going to see, right? And the morning of is crisp and cold the ground's crunchy there's a thin sheet of ice on the water we cross this creek get him set up on a south facing slope and i'm like look man they're gonna come from over here you know tell them how it's gonna play out and of course they do the exact opposite right always <laughs> and but luckily he wasn't quite paying attention and they walked out right in front of him and he had two tags i had two tags he shot two does um and we were able to quarter them up, get them all cleaned up there, pack them out three miles back to the truck and our backpacks, like some Western elk hunting stuff going down. And man, the whole time he's shaking, right? Yeah. He's wanting to take pictures. He's wanting pictures of everything. I've got some awesome pictures on my Instagram of him just holding up these two big old hams of these, this doe, man. And you could just see the smile ear to ear on his face. And I didn't shoot anything that whole week. Not one thing. And I would not trade that hunting trip for a 240-inch whitetail on my wall. Like, Dude, that's awesome. Not even a second. That's awesome. And, and, you know, that's what it's about. It's not always just about you in that moment by yourself, you know, releasing that arrow. It's about that camaraderie and that, that feeling that you got whenever you saw him harvest those two deer and – it's like you said, it gives you chills because that's why we do this. Oh man, it's, it's the best feeling ever to first to, to sh you have the feeling and the experience that you're chasing every time when you go out into that stand, you know, that adrenaline, that feel that's going to come when the moment arises, but seeing it happen for the first time in, in his eyes and just the pure excitement and the thankfulness for the meat that that deer had given him and his overwhelming zealous to get back to camp and cook some of that backstrap up 
I mean, we were we were halfway, and he's we can't just stop here and like just cut a little piece off and start a fire or something. And I'm like, Nah, man, it's like 45 degrees. We're getting back to camp. It's cold. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that story with me, man. That's a really good one. Um, so tell our listeners if they want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? So really, I'm mostly just on Instagram, behind b e h i n d underscore the bow, and I usually update you know, once or twice a week, like I said, I work full time. So it's a little something I do on the side, but do a lot of different scouting and stuff like that tips. So it'd be cool. Cool, man. You always putting out good content and, uh, I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your experiences with me and your tips and knowledge. You know, that's what this is all about. So, uh, I'm glad to having you. Oh man, I appreciate it. You know, and I've been listening to the podcast and it sounds good and I'm looking forward to hearing more in the future. That's for sure. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe. For more information and show notes, head on over to BWHNTR.com.